I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to spend a fair amount of time this morning in kind of some introductory material before we jump into a more in-depth study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is kind of where we're headed directionally. Uh, I don't know how much time you've thought, how much time you've spent uh, studying idolatry. I don't know if it's the kind of thing where you drive around and see the, the various structures in our community or in our city and notice them as idolatrous temples or idols erected to some pagan deity. I'm not sure if you are mindful of any infiltration of idolatry into your business or into your school or into your community or even to, into your home. Um, in fact, this, this matter of idolatry, I think, can, even though we know it's an important matter for us to be mindful of, it's, it has bearing on us, uh, I think that it's not, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that just the principle or the concept of idolatry can easily drift into our minds into some ancient relic of a place or of, of an idea or of a concept, that, that idolatry is, takes the shape of something that is really not relevant to us in every respect. Certainly, we recognize that we can have idols of our hearts, you might say, things that, we, that get in the way of our pure and undivided devotion to the Lord. But the, the concept, the biblical principle, or the biblical reality, a biblical understanding, if you will, of idolatry, I have to admit is not something that I've given great, a great deal of thought and time and study to until recently. And in fact, when you consider the subject matter that we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians, particularly as we began in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, this does get put into the forefront of our thinking, and of course the particular reference has to do with food that's being sacrificed to idols. And so the focus of our attention has largely been not so much on idolatry as a practice, but on the, the practice of a believer partaking in an activity, in particular eating food sacrificed to idols in first century Corinth, but partaking of or engaging in an activity that though they may have freedom and liberty to engage in that activity, in other words, the activity in and of itself is not sinful, but in the doing of that activity, they in some way cause another believer, another brother or sister in Christ, to stumble. Someone who has a weaker conscience, someone who sees that activity as problematic or maybe has struggled with that in their past life before Christ or whatever it might be. Their conscience is provoked, and so this liberty becomes a point of abuse and a point of pride in its, in its exhibition, and therein lies the sin. So the sin is not so much centered in this study around the practice of idolatry, but, but really around a prideful disdain for a fellow believer who is struggling in a particular area, and our activity and our boasting and our freedom in Christ to partake of that activity demonstrates our own lack of love for that fellow believer. There's the sin that the Apostle Paul has been dealing with and been talking about. And so he's been emphasizing this significance of every believer to live a life that is free 
And in demonstrating that freedom, we are more than willing to freely lay down our liberties for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the blessing and benefit and growth and maturity of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But this actual practice of idolatry has not really been on full display until we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul then turns to specifically the practice of idolatry or mentions it as a particular practice, and even even mentioning it in light of his instruction to believers in the life of the church. So I want us to take up this larger subject of idolatry and kind of start fairly broad before we narrow our focus down to the actual text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 20, obviously, you have the, the presentation of the Ten Commandments. And of course, in the first seven verses, you have... Uh, commandments that deal directly or certainly implicitly with this matter of idolatry. So starting in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then even in verse 7, there is certainly the implication of a form of idolatry when he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This sort of harkens back to Moses and his encounter of the living God in the form of this burning bush when he is called to go and compel Pharaoh to deliver the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 13 and 14, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. So even in the conveyance of God and his name, I am, there is the implication of none other. There is no other besides me. I am who I am. And so to take even the name of God in vain is, in some sense, a form of idolatry in and of itself. Let's look at some definitions. Let's talk about some definitions of idolatry. From the concise Oxford English Dictionary, you have two primary definitions that are fairly straightforward. Idolatry is number one, and you're probably going to write this down. It's very insightful. Worship of idols. Let me say that one more time. Worship of idols. Thank you very much, concise Oxford English Dictionary. It's very concise. Definition number two, extreme admiration or reverence. Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary uh, reflects the Oxford Dictionary somewhat with two definitions. The worship of a physical object as a god. Or number two, immoderate attachment or devotion to something. 
When you look at the Lexham Bible Dictionary, it simply says the worship of images made to represent Yahweh or any other deity. The Encyclopedia of the Reformed Faith says this, most narrowly it refers to worship of images constructed by human hands or of false deities. More broadly, it means not simply worship of physical objects, but any form of devotion judged incorrect. You get to Eerdman's Bible Dictionary, and it says this, In the Old Testament, the worship of gods other than Yahweh, especially through images representing them. In the New Testament, it extends the concept to include any ultimate confidence in something other than God, example, covetousness or surrender to appetites. Now we're moving closer to a full-orbed biblical understanding. Easton's Biblical Dictionary, or Bible Dictionary, defines it this way. Image worship or divine honor paid to any created object. Paul, it goes on to say, describes the origin of idolatry in Romans 1, verses 21 to 25. Men forsook God and sank into ignorance and moral corruption. So let's follow Easton's lead and let's turn to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. You have the Ten Commandments commanding the... Uh, against idolatry in all its forms, the statements of God himself being a jealous God, that there should be no other gods before him. And you see Paul expanding upon this and even providing more specific contour and illustration of idolatrous practice as it was manifest even in his day. Starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they were were without excuse." This holding up of the Creator God, the plain revelation of Him in all things that have been made, His divine power, His his attributes, it says, that have been revealed, that there's been a turning away or a suppressing of the truth of who God is. And then, in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul provides this tremendous insight about the nature of idolatry in that it begins with a suppression of the truth. And not just the truth, but a truth that is plainly known, that is clear and indisputable and obvious to everyone. What the Apostle Paul is actually, in effect, saying in Romans chapter 1 is that there are, transcendently speaking, no atheists, never have been and never will be. There are those who make this exchange. There are those who suppress the truth that they know about God in unrighteousness, But from a transcendent perspective, there are no atheists. But what has happened in this 
suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness is that they make a willful exchange. They make an exchange the incorruptible God for corruptible or corrupted created things, it says. And so this leads to the giving up of them, the wrath of God and the, and the abandoning of them to their lust, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, again, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, how does this look? What does this really look like? Well, Paul goes on to say, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In other words, where do these lusts take them in their idolatry? Well, they, they, it takes them to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What you will see throughout Scripture in its teaching on idolatry is a constant or consistent, I should say, correlation, or you might call companion, of sexual perversion, of sexual immorality of sensuality, of perverted sensuality, or maybe more broadly speaking, of a perversion of what God made our bodies for, which also they were made to worship Him. So it goes without saying that the natural exchange would play itself out in physical manifestation, and if it plays itself out at the point of craving, which is another thing you see about idolatry in Scripture, then it stands to reason that it would manifest itself almost invariably hand-in-hand in sexual perversion of all kinds of degrees and types and manifestations and, and whatnot. And so this is what he describes right here. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to, not to be done. So now you have... What, what is the effect of idolatry on a man or a woman's mind. So we're not just talking about someone who in some kind of deceptive, immature kind of way or in some kind of just cultural practice kind of way bows down to an idol or engages in some kind of cultic festivity that's been part of their you know, their, their tradition and their societal tradition for 200 and 300 and 400 and 500 or 1,000 years. No, what happens is that, that a man's mind becomes debased. That idolatry results in a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So when you think about idolatry... 
it, it really is not sufficient for us to think only about the creation of some type of graven image to which we then would bow down and worship in some type of cultic way. We can think of more broad-based societal idolatry, even. Cultural idolatry. When you see characteristics in a sweeping kind of way of a society sort of writ large that's characterized by these kinds of practices, these kinds of habits, these kinds of temperaments, then that is a good indicator that you are living in an an idolatrous society. When when you live in in a society that is full of covetousness, or malice, or envy, or murder, or strife, or deceit, or maliciousness, or gossip is run rampant, when slander is always on display, when people are insolent, or haughty, and boastful, or, I love this, when they become inventors of evil, when you begin to see the cleverness of man in his debased state begin to invent new manifestations of evil and idolatry. When you're in a society like that, guess what? Welcome to Corinth. Welcome to ancient pagan temple idols erected all around you time. When they're disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And this last one, that they give approval to those who practice these things. When you're at a stage when, generally speaking, your society writ large is not just sort of awash in these idolatrous practices as sort of the character or the ethos of the society, but the formal institutions of society are giving hearty approval of these things, you are living in a world of idolatry. John MacArthur says this, The right God can only be worshipped in the right way. Those who try to honor God with immoral and pagan practices bring dishonor on Him and judgment on themselves. When Christians worship anyone or anything besides God, that is idolatry. Worshiping the Virgin Mary, saints, icons, or angels is idolatry. No matter how sincerely they are meant to honor God, such practices are false worship and are strictly forbidden in Scripture. The first commandment God gave Moses was, You shall have no other gods before me. There is only one God, and only God is to be worshipped. The injunction in Revelation 22.9, Worship God is still the exclusive command. And, quote, my little children, guard yourselves from idols, 1 John 5.21, is still the comprehensive prohibition. All idols, of course, are not physical. They do not have to be made of wood, stone, or metal. Any concept of God that is not biblical is false, and if believed and followed, it becomes an idol. Churches and philosophies have developed that virtually Excuse me, churches and philosophies have developed that virtually make gods of success, 
love, social service, self-image, or simply mankind. Anything that takes our first loyalty and allegiance is an idol. Many people who would not take a second glance at a carved idol will sacrifice health, time, family, moral standards, and anything else required in order to achieve the idol of success or recognition they want. The sin of idolatry, like every other sin, is of the heart. As God told Ezekiel about the elders of Israel, quote, These men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So again, I just simply say, basically stating the obvious, I'm sure this is why you're here this morning, so you could hear me state the obvious, but we are a society of pervasive, and I would even say of institutional idolatry. The the leading and governing and societally influential institutions of our time give hearty approval, give legislative approval and endorsement to idolatry. This is where we're living today. I know that I, as we've gone through this study, I've been you know, rather passionate about this principle. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is exactly where the Apostle Paul is going to go with the Corinthians as well. It, it's not enough for us to look around and recognize that we're living in a pervasively idolatrous culture. It's pervasively sensual where everyone's identity is now defined by sexuality, which is another indicator, like I said, that that companionship of perverted sensuality and idolatry. I mean, pick your poison there in our culture, in our day and time. But, but, But it's not enough for us to look around and just recognize this and see this and even... Even pray sincerely for revival or lament all the things that we're seeing and all the pain and heartache and and lostness that we're observing. It's not enough for us to just do that. Even worse, it's horrible for us as God's people to look around with a sense of hopelessness and despair or to feel a sense of inadequacy for the task. to to feel like the society itself is sort of closing in around us. It's not enough for us to do that because what we we are called to, what the Apostle Paul is going to call the Corinthians to, is to take heed lest you become idolatrous. The, the, The warning is not for all the bad stuff out there. Though it is, I mean, fair enough. But there's a caution to its impact on us as believers. In fact, you see this if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and you look at verse 12. Obviously, we're going to get there as we move through this study, but he says, sort of near the end of this first section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So the caution for us as believers and as the church living in and ministering in and being gospel light in a society that is pervasive in its idolatry is not to lament or complain or wring our hands or be overcome with hopelessness 
but to examine ourselves and make sure that we are not complicit in the idolatry. Or that we are not sort of on the precipice of falling. Taking heed lest you fall, he says. So, so what we want to do is we want to think about this from a broader perspective. This whole matter of, of idolatry. And really the institutional nature of it, in fact. I, I've been thinking about this for some time now. I, I taught a session in the counseling conference last week. Really dealing more specifically with this pervasive... Uh, sort of sexualized sense of identity that is, is sort of who we are now as a culture and a society. But when you begin to see from Scripture that this is just another sort of companion to idolatry, you can't help but kind of go back to some of these core thoughts. And Nancy Piercy wrote a book called Love Thy Body, where she deals with many of the sexual issues of our time. She says, the new secular orthodoxy is being imposed through virtually all the major social institutions, academia, media, public schools, Hollywood, private corporations, and the law. And Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, says this, welcome to this strange new world, this new world where sexuality is identity and vice versa, where no longer are we just dealing with uh, obliterated traditional social, moral, sexual codes, but we're dealing with the reversal of those codes to where what is evil is now good and what was used to be evil is now good and what is good is now evil. So to stand against these kinds of moral trends, you're the evil person. So this is what he's calling the strange new world. He says, welcome to this strange new world. You may not like it, but it is where you live and therefore it is important that you try to understand it. So, I want us to spend some time thinking about elements of the world that we're living in. And, and, and the, the ultimate aim for us is to begin to move into this study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 so that we can begin to adhere to this first warning that the Apostle Paul gives that I just read from verse 12 about taking heed lest we fall. So I want to start at the beginning. I want to reflect a little bit on the creation account and the account of the fall in Genesis 1 through 3. And I just want to draw out a few quick principles that sort of frame up some of this way of thinking about all of this. When you you look at the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in particular when you just start with Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what you take away from that and what you take away from the entire, the entire account itself about God, first of all, is that he is entirely and completely and eternally self-sufficient. He is, he is completely self-sufficient. Eternally self-sufficient. There was no point in time in which God decided, man, it would be great if I had a world with people in it to kind of complete me. There is no sense in which God, in his essence, has any need whatsoever to live his eternal existence in reference to you and me. None whatsoever. His reference point to his creation 
is simply the act of his kindness and grace in revealing himself as an all-sufficient, eternally self-sufficient, perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly gracious, perfectly wise, perfectly kind, perfectly just God. Think about the nature of God creating you and me or creating the world that we live in and his intent and purpose. Oftentimes, when we think about the way we live, and even in the, in the sense in the way that we re- relate to our creator, there is a subtle, ever so subtle tendency for us to, to not be recognizing that we live and move and have our being in him and not the other way around. He is eternally and forever self-sufficient. And so all that he is doing in, in his creative work is intended to reveal the majesty and splendor and wonder of his character. You think of it this way. We can't conceive in our minds fully of the attributes, the perfect attributes of God. But even if you reduce those down to something less than perfect, but you think of his attributes in ways that are extremely beautiful. So when you consider demonstrations in your own life, experiences in your own life of magnificent love, where you have been shown incredible love from someone else. And you, you, you can get your head around what that, that experience of the love of someone is like, being shown to you, being demonstrated to you. Imagine such a demonstration of love and recognize that it is utterly and completely insufficient a comparison to the love of God. There is no comparison to that kind of earthly experience. It is a mere shadow. And yet, God, in his complete eternal self-sufficiency, chose to create, to demonstrate, to reveal, to manifest all of his perfections. So that, ultimately, the crown of his creation, men and women created in his image, would have an opportunity to experience and enjoy and revel in the wonder of his perfections. But in no way, as we occupy this mortal plane, are, are, is God living in reference to us by dependence, by necessity. Whatever he does to demonstrate a sense of lowering himself, he does it to demonstrate some magnificent element of his nature. The, the, the pinnacle of that demonstration, of course, is the incarnation of Christ himself, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. And in doing this, he demonstrated the benevolent grace of God in a way that is unmatched. The self-sufficient God. Another thing you notice 
in the creation account, particularly if you look at verse 2. In fact, let me just turn there. I'm not even at the text. If you look at verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You, you begin to see, especially as you move from this point into the creation narrative, that God creates order from chaos. That the trajectory of God's creative work, which is not just a creative work, but is a work of self-revelation, again, that the, the nature of that work and its directional force is from chaos to order, not the other way around. This is an important recognition. When we think about idolatry and all of its various manifestations and all of its subtle deceptions that permeate our society and therefore have the possibility or even maybe the tendency to permeate our thinking and our experience and our perception of things, think of this one principle about God and His creative work. When the world was being made that the trajectory of his work is from chaos to order and not the other way around. So when you and I are experiencing disorder and chaos in our lives, when we are, when we are finding ourselves in some way in, in disarray, in, in spiritual confusion, Oftentimes, our tendency is to look at all the circumstances around us and all the relationships around us and all the conflict around us and and even the people closest to us who are are in some way contributing to this sense of chaos or this unsettledness that we're experiencing. And and quite certainly, all these circumstances and people and family and all that are, are contributing to that all the time. That's kind of a given. goes without saying. But rarely do we look inside ourselves to ask ourselves the question, where is the idolatry? Where's the idolatry? God, if I am worshiping Him unhindered, He is oriented toward order from chaos. Hopefully you're starting to get where we're going with some of this thinking about the nature of God as our creator and, 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 and the revelation of God and all of his beauty and excellencies and his attributes, who is worthy of worship. And what gets in the way of that is idolatry. Rubber can meet the road on this if we're thinking carefully about it. And then you look at verse 3, a simple observation here. First thing, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. This is a very basic observation. This is just an observation from here, but you can pull the same principle from all over Scripture. That God produces clarity and instills his creation with purpose. Clarity and purpose. So when you and I are experiencing something less than clarity, when we're lamenting over a sense of aimlessness, aimlessness, aimlessness and a lack of purpose, the question is, are we taking heed lest we fall? 
Or are we going to this person and that person and that counselor and that sermon and that and that and that and that and that so that someone can kind of clear all this up for me? Help me understand this better. All that's fine and good, but if you're not looking at your own heart to see if there's an idol that's there. Because what we know about God is that he is about clarity. He is not the God of confusion. And he instills his creation with purpose. Not aimlessness, not hopelessness. Let's look at a few indicators we can draw from the Creator's design intent. When you look, when you kind of survey a number of passages here in this, these first few chapters, you notice, especially as it relates to the creation of man and woman, that men and women are designed for expressed worship. That is in the design intent of the Creator. That we're designed for expressed worship. That being created in the image of God begins to give indication that this is something that will be expressed. And then man is placed in a garden and he's called to work and he's called to to be active and fruitful and productive in the garden. He's, He's called and brought into community and fellowship that is another element and act of worship. I mean, all of these elements of man's creation, both the innate nature of him being created in the image of God... And the fact that he wasn't just put into a garden to just kind of play his favorite video game or whatever, you know, particular leisure enjoyment that would be possible or, you know, granted at that given point in time, that he was given all of these good gifts and all of this provision, but he was also called to be productive and to work and to, to do things that would be a manifestation of his expressed worship to his creator. And in the, in the community of fellowship, of, of marriage and family and all these things, you look at the way that God set about, created work and order of humankind, and you note that this is, this is the, the in, innate nature of man to be an expressor of worship. An expressor of worship. So this is why idolatry is such a major theme all throughout Scripture. Because what we know, like we said from Romans chapter 1, that there are no atheists, well, we could say it maybe a slightly different way. There is no such thing as someone who doesn't worship. To be human is to be a worshiper. We are always expressing worship. Always. So the real question for us as we consider this is, What or who is the object? This is is, is innate to who we are and how God made us. So this, this matter of idolatry, it's not just pervasive out there. It's a possibility in here all the time because we're always expressing worship. By the way, I don't like this either. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking that I'm enjoying this personally, this is a grueling outline for me to be walking through. Terribly convicting. Another observation from this creation account, and think of this now more broadly speaking, but uh, the foundations of a flourishing society are, and this is just a few, I mean, this is not a total list, but 
a few observations. The foundations of a flourishing society are fruitful labor, faithful families, and fulfilling community. Fruitful labor, faithful families, and fulfilling community. Again, you see this in the creation narrative that God was the one who created work. Work was not something that was part of the curse. It was just that the work itself became cursed. The nature of the work became cursed. You know, by the sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles and whatnot, right? That was part of the curse. But work came before that. So fruitful labor is a foundation of a, 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 a flourishing life, but collectively a flourishing society. Think about our society right now. Any issues at all around the labor market? Any issues at all around how people have begun to view work? Maybe have been viewing work for a long, long time. Or family. This institutional assault that's been coming at the family that is structured the way God created it to be structured. That's been ongoing for a long, long time. But families, the way God designed them to be in a flourishing society, have been utterly decimated. And then it stands to reason that communities are are not fulfilling. People are craving we're made to live in community. People crave community. So think of all the ways that this has become completely twisted up in our society. How, how idolatry, pervasive idolatry, has just completely warped so much of this. If I now have tons of time on my hands because... You know, I, work is just something that I do to, you know, pay for my, I, I don't know, m- my entertainment or my, my narcotic of choice or whatever, my intoxicant of choice or whatever. And I have all this time on my hands. And, you know, either I myself, my family's broken apart or, you know, I'm the typical, I don't know, 35-year-old man living in my parents' basement kind of profile. I don't know. Pick your, pick your pejorative profile there. But I've got this time on my hands, and the, sort of the family structures around me are sort of non-existent. And yet I still crave community. How does that play out in an idolatrous society? What kinds of warped notions of community emerge in that kind of world? Well, I think we're seeing it. We could cite example after example after example. Because the foundations of a flourishing society have been crumbling for a while now. So let's look at a few key distortions from the fall. Number one, 
Satan amplifies and distorts God's protective prohibitions. When you look at the account of the fall, this is what, this is what Satan does. This is, the, this is the, one of the key strategies of, of the, the tempter, is to distort God's protective prohibitions. In chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That is a distortion of what was God's protective prohibition. The prohibition was, Of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat, except the tree that is in the center of the garden, Do not eat from it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's a good tip. I'm in a garden replete with fruit-bearing trees. It's nice to know which one will kill me if I eat from it. That is a gracious, protective prohibition. But what Satan comes along and does is he distorts it. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Think of all the ways that the normal, traditional, moral constraints that have been in place in flourishing societies for millennia are now targeted for disintegration because all they do is limit your freedom. All they do is constrain your capacity and your freedom to express who you really are. This is what Satan does. This is what the creator of idolatry does. He he distorts God's protective provisions, or prohibitions, I should say. And then what happens in this this process of falling, of, of, of being corrupted, of succumbing to temptation, you might say, is that men and women ever so subtly diminish God's generous provision. They exaggerate God's protective prohibitions, and they obscure God's certain judgment. This is what happens in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So this is just a a very subtle inference here. In fact, some commentators would would say that that the way that this has been recorded is not necessarily any kind of diminishment of God's generous provision. But it seems to me that that it's, it's not implausible to assume that it's that in some way. You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees, of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. This is a this is a diminishment. Excuse me. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. This is a subtle diminishment. In other words, in in, in my inference here, in my observational inference here, the, the nature of God's provision was conveyed as extremely vast and generous. Of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat. And this response was, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Yeah, sure. 
We can eat them. And then there's an exaggeration in our own hearts and minds of God's protective prohibitions. In other words, we begin to have a conversation with ourselves was, yeah, God did say I couldn't have that. You're right, now that I think about it. Not, God said, don't eat this one, because if you do, you'll die. It's, yeah, God, God did take that off the table, now that I think about it. We begin to exaggerate his protective provision, because she goes on to say, neither shall you touch it. And that's not what God said, literally. Yeah, God never wants me to be happy in this way. He's always taking these kinds of things away from me. And then we obscure God's certain judgment. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And I'm just drawing a little bit of an inference here. Don't take this as super tight exegesis, but the the statement was you shall surely die. And so it seems like just a subtle diminishment of what is actually in play here. And the next thing that happens is that temptation distorts objective reality and compels a desire for a reimagined identity. It it distorts objective reality and compels a desire for a reimagined identity. Verses 4 to 6, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is, this is a complete you know, distortion of objective reality here that's going on. That, that's, that's subtly being conveyed and, and ultimately is in some ways bought into. Because that is not at all what was promised by God. That is not at all what was commanded by God. In fact, it was just the opposite. You will surely die. So, objective reality gets distorted, and then you move to this reimagined sense of who you are. Because the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I will be something more than I am now. I will be, this will be more of who I am. This will be a new expression of my sense of identity. A reimagined identity emerges. Now, this is, this is basically slowing the process of temptation, which ultimately can lead to sinful action. It's slowing that process down significantly. A lot of times this happens, you know, like that. This process just bam, it happens, right? I mean, the process of of this temptation and the distortion of reality, whatever. I mean, if we understood, if we were thinking objectively all the time about transcendent reality the way God has ordered it and made it, and if we were thinking crystal clearly about the reasons why God prohibits some things and, and what his provision ultimately is outside of his prohibitions, then temptation would be limited for us. But that's not what happens. And it's not just that we, that we have a craving for the thing. Okay, Notice that 
yes, there was a notation here that she, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. She, she noted that, that the thing itself had some gratifying elements about it, sort of naturally. But what was really compelling was what it would make her into. What would it what would enable her to become? Like God, knowing good and evil. That's the appeal. So in other words, when you go back to the pre-fall narrative and you think about some of the implications of the nature and character of God and the way that he created and the purpose of his creation, you look at his design intent, what he intended by what he created, and then you see how this has been distorted by the fall, you can begin to see, if you just think about it in those terms, how idolatry is everywhere. That... Oftentimes, I may be thinking that I'm struggling with this or that temptation or this or that, you know, uh, perplexing area of sin or this or that difficult relationship. I mean, we, we have these sort of rather surface or circumstantial identification points that are the reason or the complex of reasons for the struggle or, or the reason why we're falling and stumbling or all these different kinds of rationales that we try to put together in our minds, but rarely do we go to the place that is sort of revealed to us as we look back at how we were made and who made us and what his intent was and how all of that got distorted and moved us toward a propensity toward idolatry. We don't think about idolatry, in other words, in, in this kind of penetrating kind of way. In order for us to get to a place that we can listen to what the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians to take heed lest you fall, we need to think very carefully about the extent and magnitude and nature of idolatry and its tentacles that are all around us and all in us. We need to think carefully about these things. Well, you move forward in time, you start at the beginning. And you sort of fast forward to sort of current, current epics, current era, and you think about the impact just on, on, on the society that we live in and, the, and the, the implications of life in our modern era and all that it provides for us. You think about what has transpired as a result of the Industrial Revolution, followed by the Sexual Revolution, followed by the Technological Revolution, and what you see is some of the outworkings of that is, number one, now think of this in light of what we just talked about, and thinking of this, think of this in light of pervasive idolatry as the character of our culture, and you think about how this has been fed and fueled and and accelerated by these revolutionary movements in industry and mechanization and modern technology and convenience and even the obliterating of sexual codes and, and mores to, to where everything's sort of turned upside down from a, from a sexuality perspective and all these technologies that we have, 
What you now have as part of the, the ethos of our day is this human mastery and individual autonomy. The, early on in the, in the progression of the iPhone, there was an ad campaign that came out from Apple called, there's an app for that. Do you remember that? There's an app for that. This is what I'm talking about. There's got to be an app for that. We talked about life hacks, right? Somehow, human ingenuity, technology, our mastery over you know, the, the chemical world, there's going to be a medication that they're going to come out with that's going to solve this problem, this ailing pain, this whatever. I mean, we, we have this sense. We live in a day and time where everything pertaining to human mastery and individual autonomy is constantly propped up and reaffirmed. We are living in a day and time of unbounded mobility and limitless visibility. In, in Truman's work, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he talks about this very fact of mobility and how just, just the fact that you can like travel and, and actually relocate and move. I mean, people used to be defined in their sense of culture and society and identity and purpose was defined by the place they were born because they were born there and they grew up there and they lived there and they died there and they were buried there. But now we're in a day and time where we have mobility that's unbounded. We can get on a plane and go just about anywhere. We travel for leisure and we travel for work. We have this limitless visibility through these screens where we can know about what's going on in almost every part of the civilized planet and even the uncivilized parts of the world. And we can understand economic trends, and we can study societal things, and we can know when there was an earthquake, and we can know when there was a train derailment. We can, we, we can, can see it all. Now think about the, the propensity of corrupt and fallen man toward idolatry and toward wanting to reimagine themselves of being like God. Well, if I can go wherever I want to go, and I'm not defined or confined by a place and a time, and if I have visibility that stretches all the way around the world, that gives me this sense of knowing and grasping the world in ways that I think I grasp it, that feeds idolatry. And then you boil this down to the, maybe the more personal level. You think about social media as one manifestation of this technological revolution. We now have curated identities. We, we let people know who we are based upon what we put out there on our social media platforms, our apps or whatever. You can tell I'm very well versed in this whole area. Our, our, our Instagram machines and our whatever. So, so we, we, we let people know what our life is about based upon the curation of moments in time and, and cool things that we've experienced and great meals that we've had and wonderful scenery that we've just observed. And, and so it becomes this deceptive and alluring and covetousness building kind of thing. It's part of our culture and our society. I mean, how many times have you looked at someone's you know, Instagram feed or whatever and going, man, I wish I could go there. 
I mean, just really subtly. Man, I really need a vacation. I'm so, I'm, that leads to, man, my boss, I can't stand my boss. I mean, like one picture of someone, you know, skiing and Banff or whatever, and it's like your whole world starts to crumble around you. Because we have a sense of idolatry. That something in us, some craving or some false expectation is cultivating a desire for something, a desire to put something before what God has provided and who God is in himself. And we begin to to have disorder and a lack of clarity and all the things that are antithetical to who God is and how he made his world before the fall. And we have these customized communities to where we can, we can join an online community that is tailored to my self-centered and even narcissistic interests. Like that's how, that's how customized my new pursuit of community can be. And you know what? The moment that that community fails to meet my self-centered expectations, I can change communities. So, when we step into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let me just remind you. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. As we talk about this chapter, I want us to be thinking about not the nature of our culture all around us, but the nature of idolatrous influence and impact on our own hearts and minds and how we've been affected by this personally so that we can then address it, tear those things down, and begin to live fruitfully and faithfully to the glory of God. Let's pray.